Today's episode starts at the mansion. Not just any mansion. The Playboy Mansion. What do you say we just leave it at that? I'm Paul Shirley, and these are the stories I tell on dates. Los Angeles. A Saturday night. So, the referee bounces me the ball, like referees always do. And I take a deep breath, like I always do. Of course, this is a pretty terrible coping mechanism for the chills that are running up and down my back and have left me weak in the knees. But not like SWV. (laughs) This gets a grin out of her, which is a little surprising. I wasn't sure she was old enough to know SWV. And? She says, swirling the purple wine in her glass. And, desperate for something familiar, I pick out one of the hooks that holds the net to the rim because those are the same in every gym. Clever, she says. She's getting it. I thought she might. She seems smarter than most of the people I might have met on a night like this. And she's from Missouri. She was in an issue called Girls of the SEC, so she might understand the significance of Midwestern basketball rivalries. I tell myself I have eyes only for this spot because I'm trying to push from my mind one important fact. If I make this free throw, I will clinch a win inside Allen Fieldhouse, home to the Kansas Jayhawks, which almost no one does, as I know all too well, having grown up a massive fan of those Kansas Jayhawks. (laughs) Stupid Kansas fans. Missouri people and Kansas people have a good-natured rivalry that wasn't always so good-natured. John Brown and Quantrill's Raiders and all that. Exactly, I say. I dribble twice, like I've done since middle school basketball camp, when they told us to shoot our free throws the same way each time. The crowd behind the clear backboard waits, ready to sway from right to left just as I shoot, like I used to see it do on my parents' TV. The crowd does its part, tick-tocking across. I let go of the ball. The ball hits the front of the rim. The ball hits the back of the rim. I look at her, wanting to ask what happens next because, now that I've started, I kind of want to tell her this story. This surprises me because for a while this didn't seem possible. But maybe it's been long enough since I quit playing that I'm ready to tell basketball stories again. Or maybe it's because she caught me unawares. I didn't think I'd meet anyone I'd want to tell any stories when I arrived at the gates to the Playboy Mansion, brought there by a famous basketball player Scott knows. Because of course Scott knows him, and of course I'm roaming Los Angeles with Scott again, now that I've moved back here to get my writing career off the tarmac. But then she and a friend walked up and started talking to me at 1.30 in the morning. They were both playmates. Our playmates, I should say. They corrected me immediately. Once a playmate, always a playmate. Like a president. The one from Missouri, the one I'm hoping will ask me what happens next, gave me a tour of the mansion grounds. Then she said we should go back to her place for a glass of wine. And that was not an invitation a single person like me was going to turn down. The girl from the band and me, we made it all of a month in Los Angeles. The band did not survive the move either. Okay, so did your free throw go in or not? I wink at her. Well, that I can't tell you yet, because this isn't just a basketball story, which means we need to go back a ways so you know why. She wiggles her wine glass. Am I going to need more of this? I nod, and away we go. Twelve, Iowa State versus Kansas, 9 p.m. Eastern, 
8 p.m. Central. I joined my first basketball team in sixth grade. After 20 seconds on the court, my coach walked onto the court to call an exasperated timeout before striding to the spot on the floor where I was futilely trying to figure out how to guard my opponent. He moved me bodily to the other side of the boy. No, Paul, between him and the basket. After that, I picked things up pretty quickly, and it wasn't long before I was in love. In eighth grade, my gym teacher, who would one day preside over the end of my baseball career when I stopped a curveball with my face, asked me each day how much I'd practiced the night before. An hour, I'd say with pride. Sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. It didn't matter to me. There was nothing I liked more than being on the gravel driveway in back of my parents' house. Just the ball, the basket, and me. I felt like a weirdo everywhere else, but there in the driveway, with my only judge, the swish of the net, I was free. By high school, I was harboring dreams of playing basketball in college, but not just at any college. I wanted to play at the University of Kansas, once home to Wilt Chamberlain, to Dean Smith, and to James Naismith, the inventor of basketball. It didn't hurt that both my parents had graduated from there or that we lived 30 minutes from campus. Then there was that memory of that night in 1988, when Kansas won a national championship on the backs of several college kids whose names I'll remember forever. It was the second best night of my life, right after the night in 1985 when Daryl Motley caught the final out in right field and the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. As a child, my happiness was very much tied to the performances of my favorite sports teams. My aspirations of one day playing for KU hardly made me unique. Everyone in Northeast Kansas who'd ever put his hands on a basketball had some specious claim to why he would someday be a Jayhawk. There was one difference. As a junior in high school, I'd grown to six foot seven, could handle myself around the basket, and could make a three-point shot. So, my dreams seemed at least reasonable. For me, playing at KU wouldn't be winning a multi-million dollar Powerball jackpot. It'd be more like hitting the $10,000 grand prize on one of those scratch-off tickets that steal money from poor people. I spent the summer after that junior year playing more basketball than any human who wasn't in the NBA. Tournaments on weekends, summer league games on weeknights, exposure camps during the week. I'd found an AAU basketball team, the oh-so-hokily named Kansas Pride, that was happy to have me join a front line of similar-sized white guys from other small towns in the area. We were good, but not quite as good as Kansas City's AAU juggernaut, the Children's Mercy Hospital 76ers, home to future NBA washouts Corleone Young and Jerron Rush, and future Duke star Corey Maggette, who eventually played 14 seasons in the NBA. In our defense, we weren't getting paid to play. CMH coach Myron Piggy would later be convicted on conspiracy charges for paying $35,000 to high school players on the CMH roster, which helped explain why the CMH players always had matching shoes, and such good players. I hadn't been named to any of the fancy top 100 recruiting lists populated by Young, Rush, and Maggette. I wasn't as speedy as I would get when my body's hormonal dosage kicked up from the trickle it was set on and my jersey still hung off me like I was a scarecrow. But that summer, I blossomed into something more than the dominant small-town player I was assumed to be. And on July 1st, the recruiting call started. The only problem, the voices on the other end weren't the ones I wanted to hear. 
My most ardent suitors were employed by the likes of North Dakota State, the University of Missouri at Rolla, Colorado School of Mines, and Northern State University, which, confusingly, is in South Dakota. Not a peep from Kansas. Hell, I didn't even hear from Kansas State. And Kansas State was terrible. This was not how this was supposed to go. One of the disembodied voices coming out of the top end of the cordless phone that hung in my parents' kitchen belonged to Steve Craftsison, an assistant coach at the University of North Dakota. He'd played at North Carolina and Iowa and was, as he told me, the only player to score in NCAA Final Fours with two different teams. Most of the coaches who talked to me did so as if they were reading off cue cards like the ones I'd prepared for my first date with Kelly Stepka. But not Coach K, as he asked, predictably, to be called. We had real conversations about real topics. Sports, weather, girls, his wife, how he'd ended up in North Dakota. And, in another departure from the norm, he had a sense of humor. He sent me recruiting letters featuring cut-out pictures of supermodels with dialogue bubbles that read, I hope Paul comes to North Dakota. This was more like what I'd thought recruitment would be like. All I needed now was for Steve Craftsison's voice to be replaced by that of Matt Doherty, the head assistant at Kansas. By the fall, the caliber of my suitors had increased slightly, probably because of the natural reordering process that occurs in college basketball recruitment. As it became clear that the guy above me was going to go to somewhere above them, the better schools ratcheted down their expectations. I was hearing from smaller Division I schools, most of them on the East Coast, and most of them of that breed of college known to be associated with smart white kids like me. The Ivy Leagues. The year before, I'd done well enough on the PSAT that I'd been named a National Merit Finalist. Thusly, in the eyes of Ivy League basketball coaches, I was as attractive as a Cinnabon stand on cheat day. On the basketball recruitment calendar, September is home visit month. I granted as many coaches as I could the opportunity to navigate Jefferson County's gravel roads en route to the Shirley acreage of two acres. The coaches were mostly the same, befitting coaches who were all in the places they were for about the same reason. They were honest and decent men, both of which are characteristics generally detrimental to big-time college coaching success. Dartmouth, Holy Cross, Air Force, Harvard, Missouri Rolla, Washburn, and the University of North Dakota, of course. Coach K was just as great in person as he was on the phone, laughing about how his knees almost touched his chin when he sat down in our old rocking chair. Those coaches didn't tell me I'd someday play in the NBA. They didn't even say I'd play if I came to their schools. You'll have the same chance as everyone, they said, which was about all I could ask for. It's just I wanted to ask for it somewhere else. One day that winter, while most of the coaches who were recruiting me were focusing their attention on the teams they already had, my father said he had an idea. At first, I protested. It just wasn't what people did, Dad. But after 24 hours of teenaged stubbornness, I came around. The alternative was a home at some place like the University of Missouri Rolla, where, because it was an engineering school, the male-to-female ratio was 12 to 1. But don't worry, that team's assistant coach had said. The players get all the girls. I wrote down every place I could conceivably imagine playing. Maybe not Duke, Kentucky, or North Carolina, but Northwestern, Western Kentucky, and North Carolina Charlotte. And on and on and on. When I was done, I had a list of 60 schools. 
Using a directory I dug up at the Topeka Library, I found out the names of the head coaches at every one of them. And then I fired up WordPerfect on the Hewlett Packard that resided in my parents' bedroom and churned out my letters, in which I explained who I was and what I believed, that, in spite of the fact that I played basketball for a high school in a town of 700 people, I was good enough to play at their respective schools. Most of the coaches didn't respond, but a few of them did. At Oklahoma, Kelvin Sampson wrote that he appreciated the initiative I'd taken, but that he didn't have any scholarships left. Northwestern said they were full, too. And from Iowa State, in a leaning scrawl, head coach Tim Floyd said he, too, was sorry, but that he couldn't come up with a scholarship for me. While Tim Floyd was writing to me, I was tearing up high school basketball courts all over Northeast Kansas, fueled in no small part by all those rejections. Sometimes during my senior year, I'd only score 20, but a lot of the time I scored 30, an accomplishment made all the more difficult thanks to the zones, the double teams, and boxes and ones that were engineered by opposing small town coaches. By season's end, I'd averaged 25 points and 12 rebounds, shooting a nearly unbelievable 70% from the field while also blocking four shots every game, leading the state in both categories. And we were winning. We had a coach who encouraged us to race up and down the court, a point guard, Jed Traxler, who transferred to our school before a junior year, who could throw me an alley-oop, and a three-point shooter to take the pressure off the inside. Together, we took our tiny high school to the state tournament for the first time in school history. Surely someone would notice all of that, I thought. And so they did. The University of Missouri, Kansas City, UMKC, was interested. So was Wichita State and Drake University in Des Moines. Better, but still not the place I wanted. Sure, I'd written those letters to schools all over the country, but I hadn't given up hope on Kansas. By March, most of the high school seniors who were going to play college basketball the following autumn had already signed their letters of intent, or were about to. Like a sophomore girl who's three months pregnant, I needed to make a decision. So, after we lost by seven in the first round of the state tournament, I visited Dartmouth, Harvard, the University of Vermont, and the University of North Dakota. At Dartmouth, I saw my first real party and I thought maybe Hanover was the right place for me. But then I came home and we figured out that my parents would have to pay $15,000 a year for me to go to keggers with rich white people. Harvard was expensive too, of course, but it was Harvard. Or so said our family's resident Harvard grad, my Uncle Tom. In Vermont, the coach told me he thought I could be a Rhodes Scholar. And at North Dakota, true to form, Coach K made the competition look clownishly incompetent. My hotel room was filled with green and white balloons. When I got to the gym, on the scoreboard above, a message read, Welcome, Paul, to the home of your future dunks. Here, I was wanted. Here, I would succeed. Here, I would probably become the team's star but at a Division II school. After the visit, I told Coach K how much I appreciated everything he'd done and that I'd miss him and the models. But the thing was, one way or another, I was going to play Division I basketball. He was disappointed, he told me, but he wasn't surprised. I might even be able to help, he said. Before taking a job at the University of North Dakota, Coach K had been an assistant at Iowa State. When I told him to buzz off, he called Iowa State's head coach, Tim Floyd, 
and told him about this kid no one knew about, but who he thought was good enough to play in the Big 12, the sports conference that had just been formed by all the former members of the Big 8 and half the members of the Southwestern Conference. Floyd had just given away his last scholarship. He had an idea, though. One of his former assistants was at Southern Mississippi. Why didn't he put us in touch? The next day, I took a call in the high school library. It was the head coach at Southern Miss offering me a scholarship. This was a little more like it. A few days later, I heard from the head coach at Davidson College in North Carolina. He was willing to fly to Kansas to watch me work out. Soon after his visit, I went to Charlotte to walk the campus at Davidson, the smallest Division I school in the United States, and the only one that still did all of its students' laundry. Then, when I got back from North Carolina, two pieces of news were waiting. After a little research, my mother had learned that at Iowa State, status as a national merit finalist was worth a full academic scholarship. She'd gotten back in touch with the basketball office, and Tim Floyd had started paying attention again. If I wanted, I could come to Ames on that academic scholarship and play for the team. Technically, I would be a walk-on, a non-athletic scholarship player, but Floyd promised not to tell anyone. But Iowa State would have to wait because the other piece of news was that Matt Doherty had called. Roy Williams wanted me to come to Lawrence to talk. The night before the big day, I conjured various dream scenarios, all of which involved roaring Allen Fieldhouse crowds. Rafe LaFrance, then the Jayhawks starting power forward, high-fiving me after a layup. Paul Pierce, whose first practice I'd watched as a high school junior, picking me up off the floor after I'd taken a charge. Jacques Vaughn, smiling at me as we both ran back on defense after I'd made a short jumper. In the morning, I put on my best St. John's Bay long sleeve, cursed the pair of whiteheads that had made an inconvenient appearance overnight, and got into the Grand Voyager with my parents for the drive to Lawrence. After we found the basketball offices, and after we waited the requisite 15 minutes, we were ushered into Roy Williams's plush office. His desk was a monstrosity, something out of the mediocre John Grisham novels I was reading at the time. Then the man himself appeared, his voice all honey and clover, just like in the press conferences I'd watched. He offered us the chairs across from his desk. My eyes wandered to the pictures of him coaching various national teams, his arms around Jim Beheim, Dean Smith, Gene Cady. And then we sat. And in that same accent, Roy Williams crushed my boyhood dreams. He hadn't called because he wanted me to come to Kansas. He'd called because he wanted me to go to Davidson. As it turned out, that random call from Davidson hadn't been all that random. Someone at Kansas had called Davidson's coach about me, but that wasn't the worst of it. While I weighed what I was being told, Williams dropped the death blow, telling me that I needed to face up to the fact that I wasn't good enough to play in the Big 12. Stunned, I asked about Iowa State, Kansas's new Big 12 rival. They seem pretty interested, I said. Both Williams and Doherty scoffed. You don't want to go to Iowa State. Just go to Davidson. It'd be a great place for you. Were they trying to do a favor for an old friend? Were they trying to keep me out of the Big 12 in case I blossomed and came back to haunt them? Or were they just trying to get me out of their office so they could get back to smoking cigars or drinking port or playing cards or whatever it is that people do in a room with carpet that's an inch and a half tall? I never knew exactly. 
I did know that they were right about one thing. Davidson would have been a great place for me. My visit had happened on a spring weekend so gorgeous that I almost signed up on the spot. Plus, the coach at Davidson was a Paul Shirley fan. And Davidson wasn't so Division I also ran. The team would eventually be known for producing NBA super-duper star Steph Curry. After I staggered out of Roy Williams's office, and after my mother vowed that she'd never again cheer for Kansas, and after I said no to Wichita State and Drake and UMKC, whose head coach had come to my high school with a letter of intent that he wanted me to sign on the spot, my options were set. Davidson or Iowa State. Davidson seemed like the safe option, even though it was farther away. I'd be welcomed there, hailed, maybe not as the future conquering hero, but at least with open arms. Iowa State was a risk. Sure, Tim Floyd had said no one would ever know I was technically a walk-on, but could I trust him? Would I really have a chance to play? One late spring evening, with my brothers treating me like the rubber tires in a bumper car track, I sat down at the kitchen table and made a column of pros and cons. Iowa State was closer. Davidson was friendlier. Iowa State had an engineering program. Davidson was a better school. I'd spoken to Tim Floyd once. I talked to the Davidson coach nearly every day. My list, organized, reasonable, and fittingly obsessive-compulsive, solved nothing. What did help make up my mind was the searing pain of unequivocal rejection. Until Roy Williams told me from behind his massive desk that I wasn't good enough to play in the Big 12, the rejections had been passive, an unreturned letter, a phone call that never happened. My desire for retribution had been similarly ephemeral. I wanted to prove these people wrong, but my anger didn't have a focal point. Now, though, I had something to hold on to. After I called Davidson... The coach wrote me a four-page letter in which he told me how much he'd enjoyed getting to know me. It made me wonder about my decision to go to Iowa State. As did the first day of pickup basketball in Ames the following autumn, when future NBA first-round draft pick Kelvin Cato spun out and threw down a vicious slam dunk on top of my head. As did the first weekend of official practice, when we had a pair of grueling three-hour sessions on Saturday and another pair on Sunday as did the first slate of games, during which I was mired at the end of the bench, as did laundry day, and every time I was out of clean socks. Every so often, though, little tendrils of life shot up. Practices when I'd outsmart Cato with a timely pump fake, an early game at the University of Iowa, before which Coach Floyd took me aside to tell me I was going to play a lot, and into which I was inserted because one of my senior teammates was ineligible. I scored a quick eight points. More important, though, was the feeling I got on the court. I wasn't good enough yet, but the path was getting clearer. Roy Williams was going to be wrong about me. We made it all the way to the NCAA tournament Sweet 16 my freshman year, finishing with a 22-9 record thanks to five beloved seniors. Five beloved seniors our fans would miss the following season, my sophomore year, when our 12-18 and 18 record helped drive Tim Floyd into the arms of the Chicago Bulls. This was a problem. Coach Floyd hadn't been all blessings and buttercups, but I could tell he liked me, that he had plans for me. One day during Christmas break my sophomore year, he'd asked me to come with him to Des Moines after practice. He had to speak at a fundraiser, he said. 
When we got there, he told me I was going on stage. There are like 700 people out there, I said. You'll be fine, he said with the same wry grin that charmed most everyone he came in contact with. And I was. Here was a man who had confidence in me, who'd said far nicer things to me than my own father. And now he was leaving, in the heart of my college career, and there was no way of knowing who the athletic director would pick to replace him. But, I reckoned, there wasn't much I could do about any of that. So, that summer, I went back to my parents' house with myriad athletic cliches on the brain. I was A. Not going to let anything stop me. B. Ready to take on the world. C. Going to lift harder, run faster, and work longer than anyone else. I was ridiculous. It was like I was writing slogans for those no-fear shirts I'd once favored. But I was also serious. I knew I was close to realizing the dreams I'd carried around since my summer at Skinner's Nursery, and I was going to do everything I could to D. Make my dreams come true. During the day, I trained at my old high school, lifting weights in the fetid dungeon where I'd once watched Darren Densmore fracture a vertebrae doing a clean and jerk. At night, I drove to Kansas City for summer league games in a brick oven gym near the Paseo, which is a street where people are sometimes shot. By the middle of the summer, the cliches were lining up. I was getting bigger, stronger, better. I noticed that I was far less afraid of my opponents now. I was starting to figure out how my body worked, and my teammates on that summer league team were taking note, often throwing me the ball and telling me to go to work and take it to him. It is difficult to be etymologically creative when you are out of breath. Then came the news. Iowa State had hired a man named Larry Eustachy, who'd most recently been the head coach at Utah State. My initial research turned up some alarming data. Most of Eustachy's players at Utah State only stayed for a year, or maybe two, which did nothing to counter what I was hearing about his tyrannical attitude toward coaching. Then the rumors got less rumory. At the same time that I was thinking about my third year of college, my brother Dan was thinking about his first. He was headed off to play basketball at a college in Kansas called Pittsburgh State, and as luck would have it, one of his new teammates had just transferred in from Utah State. I called Dan's new teammate to ask what Eustachy was like. Toward the end of what had already been an alarming conversation, he said, Look, you seem like a decent enough guy. I'm going to tell you in no uncertain terms. You do not want to play for that man. Shaken, I called the man himself. When I did, his wife answered. This is Stacy. I said, Your name is Stacy Eustachy? Great start, Paul. When my new coach got on the phone, I asked him my questions. Did he know about me? Had Coach Floyd said anything? Was the starting job I'd earned still mine? All I wanted was a little reassurance for him to tell me to calm down, that he'd loved the way I'd played in some game or another. But reassurance was not forthcoming. You'll have the same chance as everyone else, he said. This was no longer what I wanted to hear. From the outside, the participants in college basketball and football seemed to have hit the jackpot. The colors, the pageantry, the fans, these things make college sports look like a wonderland. I had once thought this too. If someone had told me in high school that I would someday get to play major college basketball, I would have asked what deal I'd have to make with the devil. However, when you're inside the machine, it's a different story. 
You're tired. You're overworked. Grown men are screaming at you, and you realize how much money is being made and how little of it you're seeing. Sure, the fans like you, but their patience is short. There were players before you. There will be players after you. Oh, and you are 20 years old, with no one to guide you or to advocate on your behalf. What if I went back to Iowa State and Larry Eustace didn't like how I played? What if he was already trying to find my replacement? What if he was already holding a grudge because I'd noticed his wife's rhymy name? With the whys and the what-ifs roiling in my brain, an idea popped up, an imperfect solution to an imperfect problem. I called my high school coach and I told him to get in touch with Kansas. Roy Williams would surely be excited about having me come play for him now that I'd proved my worth as a Big 12 basketball player. My coach told me he'd see what he could find out, and I went back to training and playing those games near the Paseo in Kansas City getting ready for a season whose location I didn't yet know. But whatever, I was big and strong and 20 and invincible. Near the end of one of our games, I went up for a rebound. It was a lot like any other rebound, except that when I came down, I slipped on the gym's sweaty floor. I lost my balance and smashed my right elbow, opening it all the way to a ligament, which shone bright white in its little tissue taco. And that was alarming, I thought. My dad agreed, and we went for stitches at the hospital in Topeka where my mother had once worked. The doctor on call said I should probably have some antibiotics too. I was on a low-level course for the acne that was still plaguing me in college. I asked if that was sufficient. Sure, he said. Three days later, my arm had swollen and was oddly hot. So I went to the offices of our favorite orthopedist, where a doctor pronounced that the swelling was a result only of the trauma of the injury. He put me in a half cast and sent me home. That night, I was sitting in our ancient rocking chair, idly watching television. My mother came over to check on me. Do you feel okay? She asked. I shrugged and she put her hand on my forehead. I had a fever of 103. We rushed to the emergency room at the same hospital where a new doctor recut the wound sans stupefiant, which is a common French phrase I just made up to mean they couldn't use any lidocaine to numb the site as it would contaminate the sample they needed to send to the lab. By the time I was done hyperventilating from the combination of the fever and the pain that results when someone cuts into your naked flesh with a scalpel, we had the verdict. A fair number of Staphylococcus bacteria had invaded the bursa in my elbow. I had what is commonly known as a staph infection. I was not, in fact, invincible. Doctors get panicky about bacterial infections, a fact with which I would become well acquainted once my brother Dan grew up and became an infectious disease doctor. Nurses also get pretty panicky about them, a fact with which I would become well acquainted right then. My mother was never routinely sympathetic toward her sons when they were sick. This is because, before her stint with the county health department, she'd worked as a nurse, first at the Veterans Administration Hospital near where I was born, and then at the regular hospital where I was now about to be admitted and put on IV antibiotics. Oh, you've got a cold. At least you don't have leukemia. Oh, there's a splinter in your hand. At least you have a hand. Nursing has a way of putting things in perspective. However, there is one benefit to having a nurse for a mother. When something serious comes up, like a staph infection raging inside the elbow of her eldest son, she goes into action. 
She was on the doctors like a drill sergeant, but not in the way that most mortals might have been, which would be to wonder why someone had accepted that whatever antibiotics I was on were sufficient, or to ask why no one had caught the staph infection earlier that day. She was only interested in solving the problem in front of her, getting me upstairs and making sure I didn't lose an arm. Meanwhile, I wasn't doing much thinking at all, extreme fevers having that effect on people. I was mostly worried about when I would be able to close my eyes, because the fever and all the painkillers they'd pumped into me after the scalpel work, these things had me sleepy. Sleepy. So it was with only partial interest in the situation that I watched my parents close the door to my hospital room, telling me they'd be back in the morning. It is usually lazy and possibly disingenuous to skip to the next part of a story by saying, and the next thing I knew... However, in this case, it was the truth that the next thing I knew, my parents were walking through the door. And then they weren't walking, or one of them wasn't anyway. My mom was rushing to my bedside, her eyes wide and her nostrils flared. She grabbed my arm. Paul, have they not started your antibiotics? Uh, like I said, I wasn't using a shortcut when I said the next thing I knew. My mom's eyes got even wider and she whirled for the door. I can only imagine what happened at the nurse's station in terms of the supernatural. Like, my mom sprouting scaly wings and turning into a demon. And rightfully so. Someone had forgotten to start the IV antibiotics that had been deemed urgent the night I was admitted to the hospital where, in addition to having once worked, she'd given birth to all three of my brothers. I'll never know, of course, whether I was close to losing my arm or to any of the other catastrophes that might have befallen my body if the staph infection had gone unchecked. I also do not know how much of the bill for my three-day stay in the hospital my parents had to pay, but my educated guess is none of it. I do know that when I got out of the hospital, it was with a port in my arm through which IV antibiotics were delivered for the next two weeks during daily trips back to the hospital. Thanks to all this trauma and the fact that I couldn't work out while my body recovered from its invasion, I also lost 20 pounds I didn't have to lose. All of this while all manner of machinations had probably been going on at Iowa State and at Kansas. Sometime during my recovery, a chill flushed my spine. I'd told my high school coach to call Kansas, hadn't I? Regret poured through me in a way that is familiar to anyone who's checked the messages they sent after a night made hazy by drinking. My call had made a lot of sense when I'd been a hale athletic specimen that almost any college program would be happy to have. It made a whole lot less sense now that I'd returned to looking like a scarecrow. The real problem was this one. By asking my coach to call Kansas, I'd already largely committed to carrying through with going to Kansas. If the new coach at Iowa State, this Eustachy fellow, found out I was considering leaving, well, that's probably why someone first applied the phrase burning bridges to situations that didn't involve actual bridges. I dialed my high school coach with even more fear than when I'd called Kelly Stepka for the first time. Coach? Yeah. Uh, did you call Kansas? There was a pause. No, Paul, I didn't. It felt a little disloyal. I don't know that my sigh of relief was audible. I do know that it was a conflicted sigh of relief. Because, on the one hand, my high school coach had inadvertently saved me from a storm of confusion. And he wasn't wrong. I had to be thankful for what I'd gotten so far from Iowa State. But on the other, he'd sorta kinda taken my destiny into his own hands. And what I'd gotten from Iowa State I mostly owed to the man who'd just left. 
Then there was that quote from my brother's new teammate, you do not want to play for that man. But I'd had enough conflict for one summer, so I reported to my now familiar campus, telling no one I'd had designs on never being there again. In my first encounter with my new coach, the husband of Stacy Eustachie did nothing to allay my concerns about his interpersonal skills. When I was finished telling him the story of my terrifying summer, he said, well, at least you weren't like the guy I was reading about a few days ago. He got a staph infection while sailing across the Atlantic by himself and had to cut off his own arm. Okay, well, you're not wrong, coach, but geez. Thanks to the staph infection, thanks to a long-term strategy Eustachie was cooking up, it was decided that I was going to spend the season as a redshirt, a player who can practice but not play. The plan was for me to gain weight and strength while we awaited the arrival of a couple of recruits that were going to make us far better the following season. Then, even that plan fell apart. When I recovered from the staph infection, a sharp pain in my pelvis led to the discovery of an avulsion fracture in my right ischium, the bone in your pelvis that makes it look like a poorly drawn heart. My hamstring had pulled a piece of this bone away, which explained the stabbing pain anytime I leaned over to pull on a pair of socks. This was on top of the staph infection, and those on top of the fact that Eustachie had never seen me play. I faded into the background, a ghost relegated to the sidelines during practice and street clothes during games, ignored by my coaches and teammates. They were getting distance from me, like I was a leper or an ex-girlfriend. I couldn't blame them. I didn't know if I'd be able to play college basketball again. There was, though, one thing I could do. Lift weights. So, each day as my teammates started practice, I reported to the weight room, where I listened to Zach De La Roca rage while I took out my frustrations on the assorted weightlifting apparatuses available to me. When I'd gotten to college, I weighed 200 pounds and could bench press 185 of them, which, by the standards of college basketball, would be labeled terrible. By the end of that redshirt season, I weighed 230 pounds and could bench press 330, which, by the standards of Larry Eustachie, would be labeled as acceptable, but which, by the standards of most people, would be labeled as nearly superhuman. As winter turned to spring, I was cleared to practice. On the court, I noticed that my newfound brawn provided me with a new set of options. If I wasn't scoring points or getting rebounds, I could keep other people from doing those things. Before, I'd relied on my wits on the court. Now, I was relying on my body and, in the process, becoming that which I'd once resented, the physical specimen who throws himself around the court like he's the disc in a game of air hockey. But, I told myself, it would be worth it. Because the thing that is usually true about guys who are big and play hard, a basketball coach will find a way to get those guys on the court. Even if that coach is the sort of asshole who, when you explain your staph infection to him, shrugs and tells you that at least you didn't have to cut off your arm. We started the following season, my junior year, on a sour note, losing two of our first three games. But we found the melody after that, winning 22 of the next 23 and rising to number 14 in the national polls while also jostling for position atop the Big 12 Conference. Despite his prickly demeanor, or perhaps because of it, Eustachie had done a masterful job of pairing incumbent superstar Marcus Pfizer with Iowa State's newest toy, Brooklyn playground legend Jamal Tinsley. Next up was a game in the home of the team with which we were jostling at the top of the conference table, the University of Kansas. The game was on ESPN, part of that network's Big Monday coverage. 
It had been a year and a half since the staph infection and the memory of my dalliance with Kansas had been replaced by a familiar narrative, the one that featured Roy Williams telling me I would never be good enough to play in the Big 12. And yet, here I was, Roy, doing exactly that. The week before the game, I stayed for an extra hour after each practice, shooting free throws as the image of Roy Williams's face floated above the basket. Somehow, I was going to show him, show all of them, that I belonged. I wasn't sure how, though. I knew better than anyone how rarely Kansas lost on its home court inside cavernous Allen Fieldhouse, named after legendary coach Forrest Clare Thog Allen, whose mentor had been the guy who'd invented the game. These are two of the ghosts that haunt Allen Fieldhouse. They aren't the only ones. There's Dean Smith, who'd learned the game at Fog Allen's feet before becoming a coaching legend in his own right. There's Clyde Lavellet, who'd led Kansas to its first national championship in 1952. There's Danny Manning, who'd led Kansas to its second national championship in 1988, causing me to go into paroxysms of joy. I'd once spotted Manning at the end of an aisle in the Lawrence Walmart, we were in town to watch the Christmas Vespers program put on by the university. I was nine years old. What should I do? I asked my mother. Go ask him for his autograph. Mr. Manning, can I have your autograph? It was still on a corkboard in my childhood bedroom as the game tipped off. Many years later, Kansas forward Nick Collison would tell me that at halftime of the game, after I'd outwitted him and his teammate, Drew Gooden, for several offensive rebounds, Roy Williams screamed at both of them. Do you know where Meridian, which he said wrong, not knowing the right one, Kansas is? No? Well, if Shirley gets another offensive rebound in the second half, I'm going to tie you to my car, and after the game, I'm going to drag you there. I think I got another offensive rebound in the second half, and I don't think Roy Williams tied either Collison or Gooden to his car. He must have forgotten caught up in the excitement like everyone inside Allen Fieldhouse. He could be forgiven the oversight. Our game was one of those that made kids like me fall in love with basketball, an old-fashioned barn burner that had all 15,800 fans on their feet for most of the game. The roar they created came at us like waves, so loud that we had to signal each other with our hands. It was all I could do to keep from thinking about what was happening. We were really doing it, beating Kansas in the place where no one beats Kansas and I was having a lot to do with it. Coach Eustachy may not have been the sort of gentle soul I wanted him to be, but he was smart enough to take advantage of a six-foot-nine, 230-pound human who was willing to turn himself into a missile in the service of retribution. At the end, a play went our way, and then a play went their way, and then a play went our way again. And pretty soon, there wasn't much time left, and the game came down to the end of the story, which was also the beginning of the story. Me, at the free throw line in Allen Fieldhouse, with a chance to seal a win for my team at Kansas, and a chance to seal something like vindication for myself. I was sweating, hard, in my red and gold uniform, which seemed gaudily bright when mixed up with Kansas's pristine home whites. Behind me, a giant Jayhawk was painted across the floor. The mythical bird had replaced a massive yellow map of Kansas, the color and shape burned into my memory from those games I used to watch as a child. I was tired from all those rebounds and from the days of preparation leading up to the game, the late nights and the post-practice free throw sessions when I'd imagined this very scenario, visualizing Roy Williams' face anytime I got tired or felt like quitting. 
The crowd behind the basket swayed from right to left, and I dribbled twice, and I shot my free throw, and the ball bounced once on the front of the rim and once on the back. And then, as with most things in life, it just happened. No more preamble, no more anticipation, no more preparation. The ball fell through the net. Weed just wanted Kansas. The crowd inside Allen Fieldhouse didn't roar, because home crowds don't roar for the opposition. They seemed a little pissed off, in fact, robbed of their chance to start the chant that brings forth the ghosts. Rock, chalk, jay, hawk. My teammates skipped toward one another, ready to celebrate, ready to leap into waiting arms. I walked toward the Iowa State bench, a few yards from Roy Williams. I'd imagined this moment ever since that visit to his office, through practices, through early morning wake-up calls, through summer sessions on the track, through feverish nights with IV antibiotics being dispensed into my arms, Roy Williams's words bouncing through my head like one of those Super Bowls in the back of a U-Haul. It wasn't just about him, of course. It was all of them. All of those Division I coaches who thought I was too skinny, or too short, or from too small a town. This didn't make me any different from thousands or millions or billions of others before me, driven by something a man said to them. But in this case, it was me. And now I had to decide what to do with Roy Williams. The options ran through my head like a menu. Should I shake his hand and say nothing? Should I give him a wink and a laugh? Should I flip him the bird? Then, through the fans, the players, the people from ESPN, his eyes found mine like a Kennedy bullet. I didn't nod, I didn't wink, I didn't flip him the bird. I only smiled, and he only looked away. And because I was 21 years old, and because I was fueled more by rage than reason, it was only the greatest feeling I'd ever had. The playmate from Missouri taps the side of her empty wine glass with a blood-red fingernail. So she says. You'd pretty much forgotten about almost becoming a traitor. I laugh and lean into the vinyl behind me. The ignorance of youth. You were just trying to square the circle in your head. I can feel the wrinkle in my brow. What do you mean? Well, like people who get divorced. I once read somewhere that usually when people split up, they're on okay terms. But by the end, there's a good chance they'll hate each other. Because of the lawyers and stuff? No, because they need to convince themselves that they made the right decision. Our brains don't like to be uncomfortable. So I had to decide I hated Roy Williams, even though, like, 45% of me wanted to still be playing for him. Exactly. I swirled a few remaining drops of wine around the crimson dot at the bottom of my glass. It'll probably only get worse, won't it? What? I look up at her. The story... As I get older, I'll probably forget more and more about how many ways I could have ended up at Kansas, and it'll become a story about me versus big bad Roy Williams. Yep. She says, rising out of her chair. It's still a hell of a story, though. This is what I wanted to hear all along, of course. We move to her bedroom. She's got one of those memory foam mattresses and lying down as a relief after a night of standing around at the Playboy Mansion. We kiss a little, but nothing happens, as it were. It's too late, and she says she's not that kind of girl. And as I go to sleep, I'm feeling pretty good about that. 
Because who knows, it might be kind of interesting to date a former playmate. Take her home to Kansas, have her meet my family. People won't understand because they never do. But who am I to judge her for being in Playboy? I was in the NBA, and people make all sorts of judgments about that. Not to mention, she's wiser than she has any right to be. As I drift off, I'm congratulating myself on the new maxim I've just worked up. Just as you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, you shouldn't judge a playmate by her centerfold. I wake up to daylight streaming into her bedroom. It must be 10 a.m. I'm alone, so she's probably in the bathroom or maybe in the kitchen. I do a quick body scan to gauge how I feel, which is not nearly as bad as I thought, considering that I had way more than one free drink before that bad rapper took the stage at the mansion. I look around the room. Live, laugh, love is on blocks on a shelf, and there's a dance like no one's watching poster, and such things might turn me off if she sold insurance or taught third grade. But in this case, they serve as ballast, counterweight against the playboy thing, like all the other things I've done serve as counterweight against the playing in the NBA thing. I continue my survey of the room, rotating my head counterclockwise, past the dresser, the mirror, another shelf, this one with candles on it. And that's when I see it. Above her bed, blown up to 24 inches by 36 inches, is a picture. It's her own centerfold. I turn sharply, so I can see the whole thing. I'm hoping it will at least be tasteful. Hands covering pubis, that sort of thing. It is not tasteful. One hand is on her hip, pushing her naked pelvis toward the camera. Her breasts are fully exposed, making the photo more National Geographic than not. But most important, it's above her bed. Hey. She says from the doorway. I whirl from the poster. Hi. My voice has more enthusiasm than I intend because my brain is being overrun with questions. What happens when her parents come to visit? When friends are over? With unsuspecting gentlemen callers like myself? She leans into the door jam, playing coy. Do you want to get breakfast? Uh, I say. Do you think you could take me to my car? Remember what I said about not judging a girl by her centerfold? That's only true if it isn't hanging over her bed. Thanks for staying all the way to the end. On a serious note, I appreciate that you took the time to listen to my voice, and I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends.